Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Well, ladies and gentlemen, very welcome. In January, the head of Deutsche Bank, Christian Seving, did an interview with Uwe Husser, the business editor at the German newspaper Die Zeit. The two were speaking at a reception at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. You wanted to become a journalist of all professions. Here's Husser, the newspaper man, asking the banker, if you were a journalist, how would you report on Deutsche Bank today? So in a nutshell, what would you write? The Deutsche CEO is taken aback. He fumbles for a moment. I would say Deutsche Bank is the most significant self-help story in the financial industry. But the Zeit editor doesn't really want to talk about self-help. Sometimes with Deutsche Bank it's the case that just when it seems to get better, there is another problem. Like in in November when things really looked up and then all of a sudden uh, state attorneys came and searched Deutsche Bank headquarters under the suspicion that uh, Deutsche Bank was involved in, uh, in money laundering activities. What was your first thought? Well, uh, <laughs> in a nutshell. A few months earlier, the German police had raided the bank's Frankfurt headquarters. Now, of course, at, at that point in time, it's, it's disappointing. Um, not disappointing, you know, personally for me, but you have... 90- Being subject to investigations and regulatory actions has become the new normal for Deutsche Bank. In recent years, the bank has been fined billions of dollars for lax controls on everything from laundering Russian money to violating sanctions against Iran, Libya, and Sudan. Somehow your life is tainted by Deutsche Bank's past. How do you live with the the constant uncertainty that something else might pop up. You know, I I think that makes life really interesting, right? I mean... (laughs) By that standard, life has become very interesting for Deutsche Bank. In a recent court filing, Congress revealed it has been asking for detailed records of Trump family business interactions with Deutsche Bank. In the filing, Congress said straight out, It's investigating the relationship for possible money laundering, illicit financial deals, fraud, and foreign influence in the 2016 elections. By its own admission, Deutsche Bank has a history of serious compliance deficiencies when it comes to global money laundering in the very recent past. Now comes a new revelation from the New York Times. Deutsche Bank's own anti-money laundering experts flagged multiple suspicious transactions. They were as recent as 2016 and 2017 and involved Trump's business and the one formerly run by his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Among the transactions, one where money had moved from Kushner companies to Russian individuals. The Times wrote that Deutsche Bank's money laundering experts were so concerned they wanted to report these transactions to the U.S. Treasury. But supervisors refused to do so. Carrie McHugh, a Deutsche Bank spokeswoman, said in a statement, Alert dispositions by investigators undergo a higher-level review by qualified staff. Transaction monitoring casts a wide net, and not all alerts will result in escalation. She added, we take our responsibility for compliance very seriously and that the bank has increased our anti-financial crime staff and enhanced its controls in recent years. 
A spokesperson for the Trump Organization emailed the statement, This story is absolute nonsense. We have no knowledge of any flagged transactions with Deutsche Bank. In fact, we have no operating accounts with Deutsche Bank. We sent questions to the Kushner companies, the White House, Trump's private banker, and lawyers for the Trumps and Jared Kushner. The White House did not have comment. The others didn't respond. Meanwhile, the investigations pile up. Those subpoenas were sent to multiple financial institutions, including Deutsche Bank. The House Intelligence and Financial Services Committees are hoping to get information on loans the German bank gave uh, to the Trump and Trump Organization. This is presidential harassment. This is all these people do. Eric Trump earlier today in Fox and Friends calling it harassment as the Trump family and the organization sued Deutsche Bank and Capital One to block subpoenas. So we've issued subpoenas into Deutsche Bank and we are collecting a lot of the documents that we had requested and we are reviewing them. Uh, I can only tell you that the investigation came about as a result of the testimony of Michael Cohen. Hello and welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica that digs deep into the secrets of the Trump family business. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Today on the show, Trump and his family's relationship with Deutsche Bank, a bank with a history of problems. They were laundering money for wealthy Russians and people connected to Putin and the Kremlin in a variety of ways for almost the exact time period that they were doing business with Donald Trump. This is David Enrich, the finance editor of The New York Times. And all of that money through Deutsche Bank was being channeled through the same exact legal entity in the U.S. that was handling the Donald Trump relationship in the U.S. And so there are a lot of coincidences here. There's a lot of smoke. I have not found any fire, but... Unfortunately, I do not possess subpoena power. We're going to walk you through all that smoke. Trump, Inc. is an open investigation. So we're just going to say right now, we're still not sure what this all adds up to. What we do know, Trump right now owes about $350 million to Deutsche Bank, more than he owes to any other financial institution. And so much is happening regarding the bank so fast that we decided to lay out what we have learned by digging into Trump's financial deals with the bank and why his recent loans raise so many questions. Questions raised by Congress, the New York Attorney General, and the bank's own employees. Let's get to know Deutsche Bank. It likes to think of itself as a cousin of other global institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup. But Deutsche's recent history sets it apart from its competitors. After the global financial crisis in 2008, Deutsche Bank, like all banks, was under financial pressure. At the same time, there was more and more wealth building in Russia, and Russians wanted to get it out of the country. Maybe they'd earned it illegally. Maybe they were just scared that if they kept their money in Russia, Vladimir Putin would have it seized. Banks are supposed to run checks to make sure they're not helping criminals move dirty money. And New York state regulators found Deutsche didn't do that. Between 2011 and 2015, the bank improperly and covertly helped usher $10 billion out of Russia and into London and New York. And it got caught. We spoke to the woman who did the catching. My name is Maria Vulo, and I was the superintendent of financial services from early 2016 through February 1 of 2019. 
She oversaw banking and insurance in New York State. Just after Trump was inaugurated, Vulo signed a consent order with Deutsche Bank. In it, Deutsche acknowledged it had allowed bad actors to achieve improper ends. This consent order addresses the bank had serious compliance deficiencies that spanned Deutsche Bank's global empire. These flaws allowed a corrupt group of bank traders and offshore entities to improperly and covertly transfer more than $10 billion out of Russia by conscripting Deutsche Bank operations in Moscow, London, and New York to their improper purpose. Deutsche Bank paid over $600 million in penalties in New York and in the U.K. and said it would address its deficiencies. Here's how the corrupt scheme worked. It began in Moscow with an order by a shell company to buy a specific amount of stock. But the buyer wouldn't ask for a particular company stock, just the amount they wanted to spend. Investigators found some pretty specific emails, like this one. I have a billion ruble today, misspelled by the way, ruble, but uh, will you be able to find a security for this size? So then what would happen, the same day Deutsche Bank made a purchase in Moscow, it would make a sale in London of the same amount of stock. The trades mirrored each other. For that reason, they're called mirror trades. $10 billion were moved in this way. Rubles to pounds to dollars. Possibly dirty money going in, clean money coming out. If you're a bank, you're supposed to have systems in place to prevent trades like this because it makes it easy for criminals to wash their money through the financial system. So, yes, there was a supervisor on the Moscow desk, uh, which appeared to have been paid a bribe or some other undisclosed compensation to facilitate the schemes. Employees complained. They were pushed off. No one did anything. Even when another bank asked Deutsche Bank, is something going on here? Deutsche Bank responded essentially, no, no problems here. Instead, they should have elevated the concerns. Yes, and should have raised a red flag again. And we're looking at issues like know your customer, looking at who these counterparties are and who's behind the counterparties if one was going to actually do the proper KYC process. KYC, know your customer. This is a key underpinning of the financial system, a way to keep money launderers, terrorists, and other crooks out. So somebody comes to the bank, who is this person? Deutsche Bank did not have a centralized know-your-customer system. In its Moscow office, Deutsche Bank had one person as head of compliance, head of legal, and anti-money laundering, all at the same time. And you certainly need more than one person who is doing three jobs to actually have an effective compliance system. I mean, staffing for compliance is essential, and this was woefully inadequate. New York regulators were not able to track down the actual people behind the $10 billion in suspicious transactions. And so a very big question remains. What was the reason behind it? Because money was exchanged. Why? We still don't know. There's no evidence these mirror trade deals involve Trump. We're telling you about them because, in the words of New York regulators, serious compliance deficiencies at the bank spanned Deutsche Bank's global empire. During the same period, Donald Trump was borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars. And because Congress is taking a closer look. 
According to a legal brief, it's investigating whether Deutsche Bank is doing enough to stop schemes like mirror trading. The brief says, This is important in determining the volume of illicit funds that may have flowed through the bank and whether any touched the accounts held there by Mr. Trump, his family, or business. So let's go back to the beginning of Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank. It's 1998. His life is like the Destiny's Child song. Trump's companies have declared four bankruptcies, and he's stiffed so many lenders that the big banks like Chase and Citibank won't go near him. Well, Trump was looking for a a bank. Any bank would do. David Enrich of The Times has an upcoming book about Deutsche, Dark Towers, the inside story of the world's most destructive bank. He says, when Deutsche Bank first approached Trump in 1998, both Trump and the bank needed each other. He was completely frozen out of the financial system because he kept defaulting on loans. And Deutsche Bank in the late 1990s was very eager to make a name for itself in the United States. So they really needed to go searching on the fringes to find clients that were that had a bunch of money, but that their uh, reputations were sufficiently scuffed up that they were not suitable clients for the big elite Wall Street investment banks. And Donald Trump fit that bill perfectly. So the bank lent him money for a downtown Manhattan skyscraper and a building across from the U.N. And Trump's business came with perks. He would fly bankers to Atlantic City for boxing matches, take them to the U.S. Open tennis tournament in Queens. Then he asked the bank to sell high-risk bonds, junk bonds, to keep his casinos going. Enrich's reporting found Deutsche bankers initially didn't want to. But when Trump dangled a weekend at Mar-a-Lago, they sold $480 million in bonds. Everyone is really pleased with the outcome until a few months later, Donald Trump defaults on those junk bonds, which is just what everyone had feared would happen in the first place. So their sort of long-term reputational risk of selling junk bonds that are going to default? Irrelevant. Well, thank you, everybody. This is quite a crowd. Not too long after, Trump was once again bound up with Deutsche Bank. They lent $640 million for a Trump Tower Chicago. To help get the loan, he assured bankers that his daughter Ivanka, then a recent college grad, would be in charge of the development. The family was in it for the long haul. We're very, very happy with what's happened with respect to this building and It's now September 2008. It's virtually impossible. The banks are shut down. But we got this one built, and we're really... uh, Two months later, Trump defaulted. Then he did something unusual and audacious. After defaulting on the loan, Trump sued his lender, Deutsche Bank. The lawsuit began like this. This action arises out of defendant Deutsche Bank's attempt to derail the successful completion of one of the most acclaimed construction projects to be built in the United States in recent times. It went downhill from there. Trump claimed he couldn't pay back the loan because the financial crisis was a force majeure, an act of God, and that Deutsche Bank was responsible for the crisis anyway. He asked for billions of dollars in damages. 
Deutsche Bank sued him back. The Trumps kept selling units in Chicago. Hi, I'm Ivanka Trump. In the real estate business, the word luxury is terribly overused. And like the word beauty, it's lost much of the impact that it once had. But I'm going to risk... Ivanka Trump has by now become a key marketer for Trump properties. Fabulously luxurious, 92-story Trump International Hotel and Tower. It's already taking its place as one of the icons on Chicago's famous skyline. Finally, after a few years, the two sides settle. Trump is on the hook for $40 million, which he personally guaranteed. He needs to pay that back to Deutsche Bank. Where does he get the money? This is where their already strange relationship gets way stranger. Out of the blue, the person who comes to his rescue is his new son-in-law, Jared Kushner. David Enrich of The New York Times. And he had, Jared Kushner had struck up a relationship with a private banker at Deutsche Bank named Rosemary Vrablich. Do we know how? Do we know how they met? We don't. That is one of the world's greatest mysteries if you occupy my brain. I have... uh, (laughs) What I know is that in probably around the summer of 2011, Jared arranged a meeting for his father-in-law to go into Deutsche Bank and meet with Rosemary Vrablich, who at the time was one of the, the real shining stars in Deutsche Bank's private banking business. And private banking is kind of a weird business that most people who do not obsess over this stuff have probably never heard of. And it's part of the bank that caters to the world's richest people. The job of a private banker is usually to help rich people protect their wealth and grow it even more, to keep tax authorities away from their investments and companies. Private bankers do not usually loan money for large commercial real estate developments. Vrablich did not respond to our questions for this story. As before, Trump showers attention on all the right people. Vrablich comes to Trump Tower, gets treated like a friend— There's a favorable profile of her in one of Jared Kushner's newspapers. So there's fairly quickly a meeting of the minds between Rosemary Vrablich and Donald Trump that maybe this arm of Deutsche Bank, the private bank, can strike up a fresh relationship with Donald Trump and do what no other bank on Wall Street at this point is willing to do. What no other bank is willing to do is loan Trump $48 million to pay off the Deutsche Bank Chicago loan because Trump has defaulted on his loan and sued the bank for billions of dollars. But with the help of Rosemary Vrablich, he's getting money from Deutsche Bank to pay off Deutsche Bank. No one has ever seen anything like this. In fact, a lot of the people I've talked to at the bank and previously at the bank had initially insisted this just hadn't even happened. This is not the way it worked at all. And it is the way it worked and is just so extraordinary and unusual that no one believed it to be possible. Deutsche bankers have told Enrich their private wealth unit made money from Trump because he opened personal accounts there, brought them business. And yet... This is one of the clearest examples I've ever seen of a bank that is so dysfunctional and so careless about its risk management and so careless about the reputations of its clients and so loose with the protection of its own reputation that it would allow a guy who has repeatedly defaulted and burned the bank and caused a huge public embarrassment to borrow tens of millions of dollars from another arm of the bank to repay the part of the bank that he is engaged in litigation with. Uh, it just, it's really mind-blowing. It's not just Chicago. Around the time when Deutsche Bank is getting ready to pay off Deutsche Bank in 2011, 2012, 
Trump starts coveting a bankrupt golf course near Miami, Doral. It has a history of hosting major tournaments, but post-financial crisis, it's not in great shape. And it's in the flight path of the Miami airport. The property itself, I was told by people involved in the bankruptcy, was kind of a dog. This is Heather Vogel from ProPublica. She dug into the bankruptcy records and land deeds for Doral. The sellers were going to go with Trump because he was willing to close quickly with no financing to pay cash, essentially. The bankruptcy filing showed that Trump agrees to pay $150 million for the whole business. Of that, $105 million is for the property and the buildings, the land records show. And that's where it gets kind of interesting, I think, because he does not buy the property for all cash. He does need financing, and from what we can tell, he needs a lot of financing. And for that money, he again turns to Deutsche Bank. Trump flies Rosemary Vrablic, the private banker, down to Florida, and she helps him again. Deutsche Bank loans him $106 million. Remember, the county records show that Trump paid $105 million for the land and buildings portion of the sale. And the sale and the loan are recorded the same week. So the loan he gets is for more money than he pays for the property. And we uh, also, after digging around, found out it wasn't actually the only loan that they gave on this property. There's another Deutsche loan, also arranged by Rosemary Vrablic. This one, for $19 million, is also backed, at least in part, by the Doral Golf Course. So that means he's got $125 million in loans on a property that was sold for $105 million. Which is certainly not the kind of thing that anybody who's bought a home would uh, find believable. You can't just get a bank to give you all of the money for your house. There could be an explanation for this, an appraisal showing Doral was worth more or additional collateral. What we do know, what's in the public records, raises the question of whether the loan was unusually high for the property. I think that there's a larger context here that's interesting because of Deutsche Bank's involvement, which has been accused of not doing enough due diligence in order to spot money laundering and to stop it. You have Trump, who has also been repeatedly accused of not doing due diligence with his partners, has been involved with people who have criminal connections for years, people with connections to Russia and people with connection to illicit activity in Russia. You sort of have this nexus of all these different actors who have had problems in the past, and you've got at the core what appears to be a business decision that doesn't make sense. Why would Deutsche Bank lend this much money for this property at this point? The Trumps themselves spun out yet another story. Forbes wrote about it. How Ivanka Trump got the Doral Resort and the Blue Monster for a bargain basement price and had a baby at the same time. We got Doral, which is a great deal, and we're so excited. About In 2012, Ivanka Trump released a video touting some recent accomplishments. Not only is it the third episode of Celebrity Apprentice, and this season has been amazing. The Trump Organization was also tapped for another important deal for the family. At a time when the Trumps were buying golf courses and inking foreign licensing deals, there was a development project they really wanted. Additionally, we were selected by the GSA, effectively the government, as um, the preferred developers for the old post office building in Washington, D.C. Incredibly excited. It's such To widespread criticism and alarm, 
Donald Trump's family business gets a 60-year lease to run what is now the Trump International Hotel in Washington. Another bidder files a protest, claiming there's no way Trump can live up to his financial promises, that his history of defaults and company bankruptcies should disqualify him. Ivanka does the negotiating, and the Trumps line up an equity partner, Colony Capital. If that name sounds familiar, it's the firm founded by Trump's friend, Tom Barrick, We recently did an episode on Barrick. He was Trump's inaugural planner. What we're doing is trying to orient it towards the the greatest tribute to America. Barrick lends Colony's name to Trump's bid for the old post office. But then Colony drops out, and Trump needs a new financial partner. He gets another generous loan, this one for $175 million, also through Rosemary Vrablic from Deutsche Bank. Ivanka Trump says the family is in it for the long haul. She wants her daughter Arabella to oversee the hotel someday. Trump now owes Deutsche Bank nearly $350 million. For the Chicago debt, two loans for Doral and one for the old post office. He even tried to get another one to buy the Buffalo Bills, but the deal never went through. The New York Attorney General is looking at that one. Oh, there was one more loan. In May of 2015, Ivanka Trump's husband, Jared Kushner's company, buys the retail floors of the former New York Times building for just under $300 million. Then, 16 months later, the Kushners go to Deutsche Bank. They get an appraisal that says the property is worth $200 million more than they paid. The Kushner companies have said the increased value was because they were going to get more lucrative tenants. But anyway, they get a big loan from Deutsche Bank. It's for more than what they first paid for the building. They walk away with $74 million in cash. In a statement, Deutsche Bank spokeswoman says the bank remains committed to cooperating with authorized investigations. I think their view is that they really, really screwed up in the past several years by continuing and deepening this relationship with Donald Trump. David Enrich. And that it was a product of just very poor risk management, very poor reputational management, poor decision-making, kind of very short-term focus on making as much money as possible, but that they don't think they did anything illegal. And they don't think that kind of the sexiest storyline out there is true. And that sexy storyline is that somehow, somewhere, Russia or the Kremlin or state-owned banks in Russia were using Deutsche Bank to funnel money directly to Donald Trump or his companies. And to be clear, they were in this very period a conduit for Russian money in the mirror trading scandal. It, it's a, it's a, quite a coincidence. Uh, that's exactly right. In 2016, someone at Deutsche Bank finally decides to say no. Trump's running for president. He asked for money for renovations at yet another golf course. This one's in Turnberry in Scotland. And this was the moment inside the bank where one senior executive after another realized just how deep and longstanding the Donald Trump relationship was. And people were stunned. And they put a stop to it. The loan was initially rejected by a committee in the U.S. that's supposed to vet transactions with an eye toward protecting the bank's reputation. And then Rosemary Vrablic's team appealed that decision, which is quite unusual. 
And it, this went up to London and then Frankfurt, where there's a big fight at the top of the bank about whether or not to do this loan. And it was eventually killed by the guy who is now the CEO of the bank, Christian Seven. He's the guy we heard being interviewed at the beginning of the story by the German journalist. Are you sometimes mad at your predecessors? No, no. Um, you know, I think also that you learn that in sports, you never look back. I mean, this is Seving at Davos again. He's saying the bank is trying to turn a corner, come clean, make things right. You know what? You just want to make this bank now again a bank which lives up to the standards and which has the reputation which it used to have. And therefore, I'm not looking back. I'm not mad at predecessors. I just want to get my job right. And at the end, you know what? We need to bring pride back to Deutsche Bank. Today, the bank faces an array of potential traps. For instance, if Trump defaults on his loans, they'd have a choice. Seize the assets of the President of the United States or let the loan slide and give an unimaginably large gift to a sitting president. Trump's relationship with Rosemary Vrablic continues. She was given VIP seats at the inaugural and... This has not been previously reported. She was one of a select group of people who got to stay at Trump's hotel in the old post office in Washington during the inaugural, according to a person familiar with the arrangements that weekend. Other guests at the hotel included Jared Kushner's family and key inaugural personnel. The Doral loans come due in 2023 the old post office and the Chicago loans in 2024, all during a possible Trump second term. We'll be right back. Subpoenas issued to Deutsche Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase, part of a widening investigation by House Democrats into President Trump's finances. This winter, Democrats who control the House of Representatives decided there was an awful lot to look into with regards to Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank. And they went to Deutsche Bank very early on and explained the situation. And Deutsche Bank declared complete willingness to help. And so behind the scenes, even before subpoenas were issued earlier this month, Deutsche Bank had been engaging in a tremendous amount of very detailed dialogue with congressional investigators about the types of materials it had, what those materials showed, how the bank had handled those materials, and even went so far as to help craft the language that would be in the subpoenas. Does your reporting indicate that Deutsche Bank believes that these specific documents or that these sort of categories of documents tells a specific story? Because there's some pretty specific language about what they think there might be. Yep, that's right. Whatever it is, the Trumps don't want us to know about it. Donald, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric Trump sued Deutsche Bank to prevent the bank from releasing the documents. In their complaint, the Trump said, the subpoenas were issued to harass President Donald J. Trump to rummage through every aspect of his personal finances, his businesses, and the private information of the president and his family and to ferret about for any material that might be used to cause him political damage. Two congressional committees responded. They filed a brief opposing the lawsuit in federal court in the Southern District of New York. It lays out 
unambiguously what Congress is looking at. Quote, serious and urgent questions concerning the safety of banking practices, money laundering in the financial sector, foreign influence in the political process, and the threat of foreign financial leverage, including over the president, his family, and business. The Times' David Enrich had been inquiring about Deutsche Bank, the Trump family business, and questionable financial activity. And then someone tipped him off to a woman named Tammy, who'd been fired from Deutsche Bank's Jacksonville office. And I spent an enormous amount of time searching for Tammy's in the Jacksonville area and eventually found her. Tammy McFadden. Here's her story. In the summer of 2016, McFadden, who'd been working for a decade as an anti-money laundering specialist, noticed that Deutsche Bank's computer system had been flagging transactions involving Jared Kushner's family real estate business. And she investigated this, and what she found were that these transactions, the Kushner companies, appeared to be moving money to Russian individuals. Remember, this is during the 2016 campaign. And that struck her as a bright red flag waving in her face. And she did what you do in that situation, which is she typed up a suspicious activity report and then sent it on to her managers for review. And that's when the problem started. It's not that uncommon for a bank computer to flag a transaction and even for a specialist to write it up. But then the report didn't go to financial crimes higher-ups. It went to the division where Rosemary Vrablic works, private banking. Which is very unusual. Normally, you would keep this out of the hands of the business division where the client sits, because that, for, I think, kind of obvious reasons, which is that you don't want the people making the decision of whether to file the SAR to have a powerful financial interest in preserving a relationship with a client. Private banking decided not to send the report to the U.S. Treasury. There might be all sorts of reasons for this, but remember, by this time, Deutsche Bank had already re-examined its relationship with Trump and was already on high alert to police money laundering and financial crimes. And so the notion that an employee would flag concerns about possible Russian improper activities with the company of the son-in-law and advisor to a leading candidate for president, and they wouldn't actually err on the side of caution and just go ahead and maybe file that report, it's remarkable. I, I spent a lot of time investigating Deutsche Bank. And this is one of those moments where I was just shocked to hear this. Although it's worth noting, and I can't believe I'm about to make this defense for the bank, but the bank was so disorganized and in such a kind of sense of crisis for its own special reasons that it's not impossible that the people making these decisions in Jacksonville and up in New York just didn't connect those dots in their brains. In the bank statement, the spokeswoman said... We have policies, processes, and controls to address the potential for conflicts of interest, including special measures with respect to clients that hold public office or perform public functions in the U.S. Not only did McFadden flag Kushner transactions, a separate elite unit tried to flag suspicious Trump transactions as late as 2017. Those, too, were not reported. These are not, like, low-level employees straight out of college or something. These are very experienced investigators, a number of them with FBI or military backgrounds, who are highly trained and highly skilled at digging into transactions and figuring out which are really problematic and which are just kind of innocent and circumstantial. Presumably, 
after the New York financial consent order was in early 2017. So presumably by 2017, both on the Donald Trump side and on the Russian money laundering side, it was, you know, I I don't even know, like, what color flag we're talking about here. It was so deep red. I I hear you. I, I don't have a good answer for you. Have you been able to tell if Deutsche Bank has been, in addition to obviously providing all these loans for Trump and and handling his money, were they connecting him with business partners? Was Rosemary Vrablich or anybody else introducing Trump to other potential business partners? Were they like a sort of convener? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is not to my knowledge. I, I say not to my knowledge, and I should make even clearer than I already have that I don't know that's very different than me saying no because the information I have received is I've talked to dozens of people and I've spent you know more than a year investigating this but people have very strong financial and legal interests to not tell the full story and as I said I unfortunately do not possess subpoena power so I can't force anyone and so my information is only as good as the willingness of my sources to speak is, you know? And so (laughs) I'm sorry, I just feel like I have to caveat that because I don't want, I hate, I don't want to be the guy who says there's nothing to see here because I think there probably is something to see here. And I don't know what it is or what form it will take, but let me put it this way. I am still investing an enormous amount of my own time and the New York Times' time at digging into this Trump Deutsche Bank nexus because there's a lot of smoke still And while we have not really found the fire yet, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we do. In late May, in a Manhattan courtroom, there was a fight over whether Congress should get to see stacks and stacks of Trump Deutsche Bank financial records. Heather Vogel and I went to the hearing. We're standing outside of the iconic Thurgood Marshall Courthouse in Lower Manhattan, the one with all the columns. And a judge has just ruled that the subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives to Deutsche Bank are valid. He just read a lengthy decision pretty much refuting point by point all of the arguments that the Trumps had made for why Deutsche Bank should not comply with the subpoenas. Heather, what was the most significant point to you? I think what was most interesting was to sort of see it all moving forward so quickly. One of the lawyers came and said to someone sitting next to us, well, I didn't expect that to happen when the judge said I'll be back with his ruling. Yes, exactly, exactly. So to see these arguments laid out there and the judge being very clear and coming back after a few minutes He did concede the point that it may cause harm to the Trumps to have their financial information uh, made public, but he found that that harm does not outweigh the public interest in this case of that disclosure and its relevancy to legislative inquiries that Congress is making. One of the things that was clear was that the Trump lawyers argue that the subpoenas are outrageously broad. And the judge said, well, they're broad, but Congress has the right to do this. And we, the judicial branch, do not have in any way the right to stop them. Another thing I found interesting was that the Trump lawyers had made the argument that these requests are really exposure just for exposure's sake, that this was essentially a political move by Congress, and that that is one of the reasons that it should not be allowed to go forward, because it is so um, invasive, essentially. Well, the judge dealt with that by talking about 
how it's not up to the courts to assess, essentially, what the motives of Congress are, that that's something that's really beyond the reach of the courts. And so it's their job basically to see whether these committees have the power to request this type of information, which is predicated basically on whether they can use it in a legitimate way, which would be to inform legislation, to inform the public understanding of a matter of uh, you know, national significance. And the judge clearly found that that was the case. So as of now, when we're standing here, the subpoenas are in effect, but if passed is prologue, the Trump lawyers will be in pretty quickly to appeal this decision and to try to stay this judge's ruling. Coming up on Trump Inc., a different kind of lender takes an interest in Trump Doral. Heyday lenders. No, I don't think it's problematic. I think that, you know, they, they, they can have their conference wherever they want. Trump Inc. is an open investigation into the Trump family business. Send us your tips at tips at trumpincpodcast.org. We also have secure methods to communicate. Find out how at trumpincpodcast.org. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. Meg Kramer is the senior producer of Trump, Inc. This episode was also produced by Catherine Sullivan and Alice Wilder. Bill Moss is the technical director. The editors are Charlie Herman, Eric Umansky, Nick Varshaver, and Robin Fields. We had special help this week from ProPublica's Topher Sanders, from Andrew Pantazzi of the Times Union in Jacksonville, Florida, and Elsa Chang of NPR. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC, and Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. The original music is by Hannes Brown. <laughs>